While we're talking right now, somebody is at risk. And I think as nurse leaders and as professionals, we've got to do better. We've got to continue to drive this because it shouldn't be just the way it is. Hello, everyone, and welcome to HIMSCast. My name is Mike Milliard, and I'm executive editor of Healthcare IT News. Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, violence against clinicians was a pressing concern for the healthcare industry, with violence about four times more prevalent in healthcare than any other industry. So today we'll speak to a nursing leader who has taken steps to address caregiver violence, and we'll learn what strategies have worked for them and discuss how digital tools can help. My guests today are Jennifer Schmitz, who's the president of the Emergency Nurses Association and a chief nursing officer, and Whitney Lloyd, who's vice president of customer experience at Baxter International. You know, as we've seen recently, the tragedy of, of violence in the healthcare workplace is very real. You know, from one extreme, you know, we saw the, the shooting in, in Tulsa earlier in June. Just this week, there was a patient killed in a Nevada hospital. But but much more pervasive than those severe acts of violence are the kind of daily assaults that happen to healthcare workers every day across the country. Why do hospitals and, and outpatient clinics experience violence disproportionately to other workplaces? I'm happy to start um, with that. I think for emergency nurses in particular, some of this is the patient population that they're caring for. And so no one plans to go to an emergency department. And so often that in and of itself is a stressful event where people are maybe more tense and and have uh, more stressors than they normally would in a circumstance. Um, But I also, I think we deal with patients Uh, with behavioral health issues, uh, with substance abuse issues. And so all of that together, I think, lends itself to an environment where this is more likely to occur. And I agree with you, Jen. Um, Certainly when people come into the emergency department, it's unplanned. We don't have a relationship established between the caregiver and the patient, and it makes everybody a little more vulnerable. And I think as a former nurse executive prior to coming to Baxter, we really focused on the ER, but we we failed to recognize those ER patients are now we're taking away kind of their control in the environment and putting them in the inpatient setting. And, and then, you know, those same vulnerabilities, those same stressors exist, but now we've even taken them more out of, out of control of their own environment. And so I think healthcare is a stressed, strained environment right now, both for patients and for um, caregivers. And so I think it just makes everything a little more vulnerable and a little more at risk for um, more impactful activities. Customers, patients, nurses, there's a lot going on and it puts everybody more at risk. That's a great point. And Mike, you asked kind of hospitals and clinics. I think Um, Whitney made an important point that often people think of emergency departments or even behavioral health settings, but it's really uh, kind of pervasive through healthcare overall. Um, And that is maybe a different viewpoint than we've had uh, historically. Absolutely. That's a great point. So, you know, and added to it all, you know, the past couple of years, this pandemic has been stressful for everyone, uh, no one more so than, than uh, clinicians and the patients and their families that they care for. Um, how has, uh, you know, COVID-19 exacerbated the problem of violent acts in the workplace? So I think uh, for the hospital and emergency settings in particular, there's no break from the stress. So people have the same stress that they're coming in to see you for, but at home is also stressful, work is stressful, 
Um, and so that's kind of a universal problem for all people, right? And so they come in with uh, kind of greater tensions than they would have prior. But the other component that was a, a substantial contributor was the lack of um, family and people that could be at the bedside. And so when we limited visitors due to need and um, and really social distancing and, and all of those measures, it limited people's access to their family at a time when they often need them most. And so that alone, I think, creates um, a, just a different way that we connect with patients and their families. And often healthcare isn't solely on one individual. Their family is a, a big support system. So trying to find new ways to incorporate that um, and that's true of, again, all settings where visitors were limited, uh, really puts an added stress both on the patient and their, their family. Mm-hmm. I agree. And we also wore masks and goggles, and it really separated the human side of us. And so it's much easier to become aggressive with someone that you're not connecting with. And I think that um, we were beyond closed doors a lot, so people didn't feel that connection with us, um, as well as when we were patient-facing um, and within that kind of sacred space of care, we have masks and we have goggles and we have shields and, you know, we're in total garb. And so that really also creates a difference from where we practiced two years ago to when we really were in those early days of the pandemic. So I mentioned up top a couple of the, you know, tragedies that have made the headlines nationwide. Um, but, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that happens every single day in, in provider settings all across the country. Smaller offenses. Uh, you know, I had a nurse friend who, who had a bedpan thrown at her by an angry patient, you know, and it, it, this kind of stuff happens every day and, and it doesn't really get um, reported. And a lot of folks don't realize quite how dangerous, you know, the, some of these settings can be. What are some of the more common threats faced by, by nurses and, and physicians and, and staff? So I think there's one that's uh, maybe the most underreported, and that's the verbal abuse. So people really um, take action and, and highlight the times where it's physical. And certainly there's an extreme, you know, there's a range of what that physical violence looks like and what it can be. Uh, but one of the other, and it's a more um, constant, ongoing uh, kind of problem for healthcare providers is the the verbal assaults, the attacks, the comments, the way that people talk to them. Um, and they're in a profession where they're trying to offer care. And so when you have that kind of ongoing, it does impact their connection with people, how they feel the care they're offering is being valued. Um, and I think sometimes that gets forgotten when you think about violence. We really connect it to physical, which is certainly important, and we, we don't want that either, but it does... Uh, span a little bit of a broader uh, scope there. Mm -hmm. It does. And sometimes patients strike out um, just because they're in pain. My daughter is an OB nurse, and I can tell you she comes home bruised and battered, um, not because someone intended to hurt you, it wasn't malicious, um, but it is kind of a natural human response. And so it, it does, it varies. Like there's this continuum of you know, verbal and uh, aggressive verbal assault, but there's also the non-malicious, and then there is the um, ill-willed intent um, to hurt somebody. And you can understand sometimes when you think about the situation that these patients are in, um, we've taken away a lot of their control. Um, if somebody walked into your bedroom at home, you would be like, I own this space. 
In the hospital, we walk into those rooms like we, as nurses and as caregivers and as um, housekeepers, we own that space. And so um, understanding that and understanding how sick they are, or maybe they are on a new medication and they're not thinking clearly, or maybe they're going through a detox. And injuries happen all the time. Like you said, throwing a bedpan, throwing a nurse call, throwing a a urinal of urine, um, striking, I have been bit, um, hair pulling. Um, You know, there are a lot of things that happen because as clinicians, we engage in this very close and sacred space. So the whole social distancing things goes right out the window when it's a caregiver. So it puts us at risk for all types of things from the verbal aggressions to the physical aggressions um, that can result in really, um, really life changing events. And, you know, nurses, unfortunately, are limited in how they can respond to some of this stuff. They have to keep a happy face on and, and do their job. You know, what sort of training are, are the frontline staff typically given uh, to help protect themselves and to, to continue doing this very important job in the face of, of such challenges? I mean, are they educated in, in how to respond and, and hopefully, ideally, de-escalate uh, situations like this? Uh, the de-escalation word, I think, is key. And so that is uh, a skill set that, one, they don't get in nursing school, uh, at least not as much of a focus on that as they do their clinical skills. And so, uh, you know, where I work, and I think in emergency nursing in particular, but likely spreading throughout other nursing units, we are focused now on how do you train someone to really de-escalate. It's a skill set in and of itself uh, to be able to try to work through that type of uh, confrontation or kind of um, higher conflict discussion with someone uh, that not everybody has the skill set to do. And then certainly we've expanded um, kind of locally to other nursing units too, because Whitney made a good point earlier. It's not just emergency department. And so if you're in an inpatient unit for three days, it might be on day three that you're really frustrated. And so healthcare workers across the board really need to know how do I keep that? How do I manage that conversation one, to prevent it from um, kind of escalating, but also to, to reassure your patient and to try to give them that true sense of um, security that they're there and you're doing everything you can to take care of them. Uh, and then on top of that, we do train for physical engagement skills and so that they're really personal safety. They're safe ways to prevent a patient from harming the caregivers or themselves. Um, and we, we only resort to that when it's absolutely needed, but Again, it's a skill set that's important to have so that people aren't, aren't unintentionally hurt. And I think de-escalation is one of those things. And, you know, as we were talking about, the anxiety levels are so high of, of the patient population right now and, and of the caregivers. You can feel that anxiety. And sometimes it's hard to recognize when something is going to pop off to a level where you're in danger, because we tend to ride this fine line of things are going well, things are going well, and it's very easy or it's very um, subtle uh, to miss that sign, that subtle sign of things are escalating here or are or are under control. Um, as a former director of nursing, I was rounding, and um, I knew that this particular patient. Um, had a a violent history, um, but had been under control, had been with us for over a week. And I was rounding on this patient and he very quickly 
went from a, a normal conversation to a very violent one and um, actually cornered me in, in the corner of the room and I, I couldn't get out of the room. And I had no way to let anybody know that I wasn't in a safe situation um, because the way we build our buildings now, they're bigger and bigger footprints and they're single rooms and they're private. So, you know, even the safety that used to come from having another patient in the room, those those days are, have passed us by as well. And so um, having those those key um, sensitivities to when a patient may um, kind of escalate is so important. And I think right now some of that's lost because we are wearing masks and you can't see the subtle signs and um, the patients are sometimes wearing masks as well. So um, really needing to be aware and empowered to keep yourself safe because as nurses, we're there. We Every single day we come to work and we're like, I'm going to make a difference and I'm going to take care of these people. And um, sometimes we forget to take care of ourselves um, while we're in that room and, and we get ourselves in a position where we can't get out. And it's not just patients either. It's it's their families too, in some cases, you know, if they're getting yes. that they don't like or, or they don't like the... Uh, the care protocols that are being given to a, a particular patient or something else sets them off. I mean, that's another, that's another thing to look out for. So, you know, both Whitney and Jennifer in your, in your years as practicing nurses, you know, can do any specific incidents come to mind? Any, you know, episodes of violence um, that were especially memorable to you and, and, and how were they resolved? Uh, there's two for me that stand out and, uh, ENA has partnered with ASEP, which is the American College of Emergency Physicians, on an initiative called No Silence on ED Violence. We had a press conference recently, and I shared these. And in thinking about that, um, was prepping, thinking, what were the ones that stand out for me? And, and I think, to start, there are a lot to pick from. And I think that, in and of itself, is something to try to say what ones really stand out the most um, but there are two for me that really stand out. One is, um, they're, and they're different in that one, I was a new nurse and was uh, helping a patient change into a gown. And he, um, he handed me a, a huge knife at the time. And I might've been, you know, I was, might've been there six months at that point. The fortunate part of that situation was he said, what do you want me to do with this? And so I was like, okay, we can move this. But I don't know that we had the right matter, measures in place to prevent that, that weapon from even getting that far into the department. And so it highlighted a need just to consider things differently. Um, and so that, that might have been the point where I really didn't take for granted that that couldn't happen to me or that it, it couldn't happen in any situation. Um, and the second was one that I watched another coworker um, actually get choked. And the staff uh, that were working, we were able to intervene quick enough that there wasn't a poor outcome, uh, but he wasn't able to get himself out of that situation. And so I think, again, it highlighted, one, how fast these events can occur, um, despite how you think the environment is, you know, you're kind of keeping it as safe as you can. Some of this is unpredictable um, and can occur quite quickly, and so being able to offer your colleagues that help in the moment and, you know, to Whitney's point around having people there and having access to others, uh, I think in this case saved his life. Um, and so those two for me are a little different in terms of what occurred, but I think represent um, important things for healthcare workers to consider. 
I agree with you, Jen, and it's it's heartbreaking that we probably don't just have a couple that come to mind as soon as somebody asks us that question. It's like, it almost feels like a Rolodex in my mind. Like I can see dozens of them over the years. And I think one key point that Jen just brought up is it doesn't matter how novice or how tenured you are as a clinician or a caregiver. Um, we can all be at risk. You know, certainly as a new caregiver, you may not notice those subtle signs. Um, but I, as I was saying earlier, um, I had 20, probably 20 plus years of experience. Um, and I was an ED nurse in the city. And um, I had a critical care background where patients are very vulnerable and families are very charged up. And um, in that single day that I could identify like it was yesterday, um, my whole life changed. Um, because in that sacred space that you almost have to provide um, that vulnerability in order to connect with those other humans in a way that we do want to as nurses and that those patients need. And in that 15 minute episode, everything changed. Um, you know, my lip was bleeding, my shirt was ripped. I was scared, I couldn't get away from him, but it changed everything. It changed everything for me when I went to the grocery store. It changed everything for me when I walked into the building the next day. It changed everything about how I felt. And as a nurse leader at the time, when I got myself together again, I needed, to, I needed to start a path toward how do I make my nurses safer every single day. This cannot continue to happen. And if it could happen to me, you know, I'm the nurse leader, I'm supposed to be the one that keeps everybody safe, all the patients safe, all the families safe, all the caregivers need to return home to their families. Like that's, that's what I bring to the table every day and I wasn't able to do it. And so it really gave me pause at that time. And it may be, as horrendous, you know, I've, I've had broken jaws and teeth by patients um, from bathroom sinks uh, against nurses. Um, I have had um, weapons. I have had um, choke, choking. I had a nurse in one of my psych units who was choked um, until he um, passed out. Um, these things happen every single day and it's sad. And I think Jen and I probably could both agree while we're talking right now, somebody is at risk. And I think as nurse leaders and as professionals, um, we have got to do better. We've got to continue to drive this because it shouldn't be just the way it is. You know, I'm a nurse and it's just the way it is. Well, it, it can't be because we can't afford to have any nurses leave our bedsides. Um, we all are going to need cared for. <laughs> and so we need to care for the nurses that are caring for us and that are going to take care of us in the future. Right. So toward that crucial question, then, you know, what what are some processes and, and even some technologies, perhaps, that could, you know, help prevent this and help, you know, not just around the edges, but really kind of go at the problem and, and help nurses better respond and and, you know, prevent and, and respond to, to these incidents? So I don't know that there's any one in particular that will fix it all. I think it's got to be um, kind of multiple strategies to put in place. The awareness by itself is helpful. Um, and so people understanding that this happens in healthcare settings, um, there are a lot of settings where this is not tolerated, right? And you would be removed uh, if you were behaving that way. And healthcare isn't one of them, uh, at least not, not quite there, uh, in the same way that if you're flying on an airplane and you behave this way. Um, and so I do think that awareness is important and expectation setting. 
continued training of staff around boundaries and that safety and awareness is important. Um, you know, we talked a lot about people come and they, they aren't expecting to be there, but we're also uh, invading a personal space by offering our what we do for work. And that in and of itself kind of puts you closer to people uh, in, in environments that are more vulnerable. Um, and so having an appreciation for that uh, is also important. There's also other things, right? So there's some technical things. Metal detectors are helpful for certain components. Um, you know, how your, your systems, how you alert others. So whether they're, some places call them panic buttons or alarms, something to be able to get help. So I feel like there's different parts of the, the mitigation strategies that can be addressed by uh, some technologies. Some are really that human information and awareness part. I agree. It's it's a blended approach. It's layers of, of protection and, of course, the awareness and, of course, setting the expectation. I, I remember I appreciated one of the first things that we did is, is we put signage up that said, you know, violence toward our caregivers that are here to care for you will not be tolerated. Now, you know, everybody takes that to a different level of, just like you said, is, are they removed like they would be from an airplane? You know, probably not. They need us to care for them. But setting an expectation so that everybody knows what it is coming in the door is so important, but then providing the tools for them. You know, if it's something, if it's as simple as a duress button. Unfortunately, my nurses all had duress buttons, but because I was a director of nursing, I didn't wear a duress button. And it, and it changed everything for me. And so having the ability to engage the right technologies, um, engaging a culture of it's safe to talk about this. If you're not, if you're concerned or if you don't if you feel unsafe, having the place to come forward, maybe at huddle and say, I'm concerned about my patient in bed space 21. I'm going to ask that we just co share the care of that patient because there are times that we need to make sure we're using the buddy system to protect one another. So I think it's between um, setting expectations doing the proper training, if that's CPI or NAPI or whatever that may be, um, on de-escalation and, and self-safety, um, as well as then having the open communication with your own team, your security forces, but then also engaging your IT teams to say, okay, what tools do we have available that we could use to make sure that if, if I had a nurse or a caregiver in a situation that they needed help, that they could immediately get that help. And then secondarily, can we find them? So if a duress button is going off, where is that caregiver in jeopardy? Our caregivers travel all over these organizations. They're with stretchers, they're in dark hallways, they're in the stairwell, wherever they may be, we need to make sure we're also then not only able to know that somebody's in trouble, but where then is that person in trouble to like immediately pull that security team or other caregivers to the bedside for additional safety. Any advice, you know, that either of you has seen about, you know, particularly good ways to make sure these technologies and tools are deployed effectively and, and have kind of good staff buy-in? Uh, so I think engaging the staff in the discussion is the key piece to that. So one, they appreciate hearing that you're interested and you want to help uh, with solutions and they likely uh, have more hands-on experience or more direct experience with what will help 
uh, in their world. Certainly the you know, leadership and executives need to be able to support that, but I think engaging them from the start makes them part of that conversation, which then your outcomes uh, will, be, will better serve them. Mm-hmm. I agree. You know, technology can do a lot, but it can't do everything, as we've discussed. I mean, ultimately, this is a human problem. Um, you know, what, what else could hospitals and health systems do to rethink their approaches to staff security and, and kind of have a more comprehensive plan that brings in technology and the human factor? I think initially just making it a priority. You yeah. know, there are so many fires burnings, especially now post-pandemic and all of the crises. But I think making the safety of our caregivers and the safety of the people who are going to come into our organizations every single day a top priority um, as we're looking at, um, you know, where do we put our funding? Where do we put the priority? Where do we put the conversations? You know, the safety of our caregivers should be a KPI. You know, it should be something that we're looking at every week as leaders to say, am I keeping my team safe? Um, because I'm asking them to come in and give everything they've got to give every single day. And so I think uh, the first thing is, is setting it as a very high priority uh, that caregiver safety is um, one of our top KPIs. Um, I used to be a paramedic, and when you're a paramedic, you're trained scene safety before anything else, because uh, if you're not safe, you're no use to that, the event or what's going on. And I think for hospitals to step back and think about it in that way, to some degree, is that our hospitals need to be safe for those caregivers. And while we can't prevent everything from happening, we can minimize some of uh, what we're currently at risk for. And so... I think thinking about it that way, it shouldn't be easy to get into hospitals. It should be, you know, a monitored thing. We know who's in the building and, and where they are. Uh, I think those are just different approaches to maybe even historically how we've looked at this, uh, but now probably need to take a different approach. Well put. All right. Well, I want to thank you, Jennifer and Whitney, for a really important discussion. And thanks to the audience for listening to HIMSCast. And thanks, of course, to our sponsor, Hillrom, a part of Baxter. We encourage you to rate and review this podcast. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play.